As I mentioned last week, we've ended season two. And for the next few weeks, we're putting out some bonus episodes, just picking some of the best parts from previous guest interviews. I hope you enjoy. This week, we go back to episode 30 from last year with Debbie Millman, co-founder of the Masters in Branding program at New York School of Visual Arts and the host of one of the most popular and longest running podcasts, Design Matters. We pick up the interview at 20 minutes in, where Debbie discusses the serendipitous events that have affected her path in life, and we take it from there. If you missed this one last year, Debbie's great strength is her candor and vulnerability. You'll be inspired by the short insight into the life design of Debbie Millman. One thing I should say that during this interview in Debbie's studio, I was sitting a little too far from the mic, so my voice isn't quite on the same sound level as Debbie's. But apart from that, it's not about me, it's about Debbie, so enjoy. Well, we like to talk about serendipity and obviously through your life arc you've encountered some incredible um, experiences and gone in many different directions can you maybe just talk a bit about where you could identify where serendipity may have um, affected the path you went on or redirected you well certainly the biggest is my experience with speak up the blog where i discovered that i had been written about and um written about meanly and my choice to participate in that discussion and try to sort of intellectually defend myself as opposed to angrily defend myself certainly changed the trajectory of my life um, in that I then started writing for Speak Up and um, had a whole new posse of friends that are still my friends today. Um, I ended up meeting the editor-in-chief of Print Magazine and route to a Speak Up event for the AIGA. That changed my life, Joyce Ryder Kay. Then I, I started working for Print Magazine. That experience introduced me to Stephen Heller. He helped me with my first book deal. He, co- he invited me to co-found the Masters in Branding program that we're sitting in right now doing this podcast. So I would say that a whole arc of my life wouldn't have been possible without that one serendipitous situation wherein Felix Sockwell decided to take my whole life down on um, the world's first ever design blog and forever change my my life. Well, I suppose you look back and thank him. I do. <laughs> thank him for doing I do, that, yeah. as often as I can. Um, <laughs> We're friends now, too. What was your feeling and I've, I've heard you talk a bit about this that when you first saw it and that that immediate feeling I think we've all encountered that that element of being not shamed but oh it was shamed yeah it was but, shamed but that, that sort of experience it clearly took um well it feels like it took a bit of courage and bravery to actually embrace it and and go forward and confront it rather than to turn your back on it. What was it inside you that gave you that that drive and, and determination to say, I need to, I need to confront this? Well, I thought they were wrong. And I've learned that I'm a person that likes to be right. And so when I first entered the conversation, I did so in a very disingenuous way. I entered the conversation with like, hey, how's that? How's everybody doing? Loving the conversation, which I wasn't. I was terrified and tortured by the conversation. But this was still early days in terms of... Yeah, and I didn't... Yeah, I didn't know. Protocols weren't there. Exactly. No, I was... I was devastated. I was inconsolable. I, you know, here I am running a design consultancy, working, clawing my way up to the top, trying really really hard to make a life of my of my own for myself and and figure out how to live and proud of what I'd accomplished at that point because that was when I had first gotten some success in branding and then this 
little upstart design blog run by a couple of dudes in their 20s decides to trash my entire practice, it nearly killed me. Um, It was something that I didn't think I'd be able to recover from. I had no idea that that one of the worst, the worst professional experience of my life was going to turn out to be the most important, Mm -hmm. that that would change the trajectory of my life. At the time, I thought I was doomed. I thought that I'd have to quit my job, that I had shamed my agency, that once people started reading this, they would never want to work with Sterling or at Sterling again, and that I should, for the benefit of the business, quit. But I had no other marketable skill. So, and I had a mortgage and, you know, I just... But you had a lot of good friends and supporters. Um, no, I didn't. Nobody came in to support me in that, in that situation. Did you, did you they, I don't even know that they friends? knew. Not really. No, no. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know. It wasn't like I was outraged and, and calling everybody and saying, you know, come in and defend me. I didn't do that. Mm. I didn't do that at all. I was so mortified by this. I was. Tr- I think I must have tried to hide it because there was no one that I asked to defend me. Dave Weinberg, who then worked at Landor, came in and defended me, but I didn't know him. He came in and defended me at the very, very end. Uh, thank you, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, 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 I wouldn't have even asked. I don't think I could have asked my friends to come in and defend me. I don't know that they could have. I don't know that they there was anything to defend. This was their opinion. They thought that the Burger King logo was disgusting. They thought that the Star Wars work was bad, and and they wanted me to know it. I tried to persuade them otherwise. Ultimately, I think I did, but I don't know that anybody else would have or should have or could have, and I'm glad they didn't, actually. Mm. And what's your relationship with them? Oh, my God, are you kidding? I'm Armin and Bryony's eldest daughter's (laughs) godmother. They're my closest friends. They're family now. I mean, Felix isn't family, but he's certainly a friend. Mm -hmm. But Armin and Bryony, Armin Vitt is the founder of Speak Up. Armin and Bryony are dear, dear friends, and I am very close to their children and the godmother of, of their oldest daughter. How do you counsel your students in the world that we're living in where clearly shaming and the the negative power and impact of social media can have on on kids today? Do you draw on that experience to give them guidance? No, not really. Not really. Um, I mean, I think most people that know me know that part of my history. Um, I do talk a little bit about resilience with my students, and that's an example that I'll use. But... I don't really talk about rules of social media, mostly because I don't feel like I know them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel experienced enough to counsel on that. But I suppose from um, from a character perspective, and in terms of doing what you feel is right, following your gut. Um, I think they learn by osmosis mm-hmm. how I live my life and how I teach them about branding yeah. and about consumer behavior. I think they learn about that through me and then probably can take some of those lessons into other areas of their life. Can you talk about the role curiosity's played in some of the actions that you've taken in your life? And obviously, we, you've mentioned the serendipity and where that occurred. But as a, as a, as a curious, sort of playful child, and, and someone that has a desire to be in arts and some form of, of whether it be publishing or design and branding, is it a, is it a fuel that you're aware of and is something that you continue to feed or do you just, uh, how do you nurture it? I think that my curiosity is sort of like air. It's just something that I utilize to live. 
I don't think about it. I'm not conscious of it. It's very involuntary, but it is probably one of the driving factors of my existence. I am innately curious. And I think that's also why I like doing my podcast so much, because I'm innately curious about how people live their lives. And that gives me a way in to talk about that with other people. How do you, how do you live? And that curiosity fuels my questions and that curiosity fuels everything. I've heard you mention about, I, mean, I, had, a, I had a boss in London that um, in, in grey, he used to talk about radiators and drains, and I've heard you oh, really? a podcast talking about Oh, that's this. so funny, because <laughs> that's, Another two types yeah, of the generators and drains. I learned that from um, my partner at Sterling, who was also British, so maybe he, yeah, they all got uh, it from the so, same place. Yeah, it's a British thing. Yeah. Um, a bit like time uni. But one of the things that I've, I've, I find a challenge is interviewing for attitude. How do you, when you're interviewing either a, a student or someone to hire identifying them what what do you look for to ensure that they've they've got that right attitude energy mm-hmm. it's all about energy energy curiosity passion they don't have to be an extrovert but they do have to exhibit a certain curiosity about the world and a certain openness about what is possible mm-hmm. how- i'm i'm not there to um pull it out of them i would like for them to offer that as part of who they are and are there any particular techniques or questions that you tend to ask to uncover that? Or do you just look to their work and their and what they've they've achieved in there? It's really funny. I'm a terrible I feel like I'm a terrible interviewer for jobs and for students. Um, I think I'm a good interviewer on my podcast, but I rely on my staff here at SVA to help because I tend to be less discerning. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to find uh, and find something that I like in everyone. And I can't, we can't accept everyone. And I can't hire everyone, but I tend to want to. So I, I rely on others to help me with um, assessment, a proper assessment. Sometimes I'll just want to hire somebody because I like them so much. And that always doesn't always go well. Churchill was, it was often quoted as saying, but I'm not sure it was Churchill that actually did say it. Um, success isn't final and failure is not fatal. Um, it's the courage to continue that counts. Mm. We've touched on a little bit of courage in that particular situation where you confronted um, the blogger. How do you continue to nurture your own courage when you've encountered many situations that individuals of lesser character would have not responded and, and moved on from, but you have, and you've achieved some st- stellar moments in your career and seem to be on a continuing path. As, as you say in your interview with David uh, David Lee, Lee Roth, Roth yeah. <laughs> it is a never-ending path. Yeah, and, one would hope. <laughs> and there's probably sort of a, an incredible amount more to come. But courage, it's because it's, I know that there's this whole thing around courage and confidence and confidence, but for me, courage is some, something scepter. It's something that's, that burns inside you. It's a is a drive. And I know that we've talked about self-belief and, the, and maybe the lack off when you were younger. But is this something that's grown over time inside you? Um, courage? Has courage grown inside me? Is that yeah, what you mean? Have you become, has you, as you have overcome th- these challenges that were being thrown in your way or put in your way, and you've, you've been resilient and vindicated and experienced success, I'd, I'd assume that your self-belief is strengthened and that it makes you even more courageous. Hmm. I don't think I'm more courageous. I think I just want a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think it's only 
courageous to do something before you do it. And then after you do it, you look back and you think, what took so long? You know, coming out is a really big thing for me. I didn't come out until I was 50. I was really worried. I had my own inner homophobia to deal with, my own shame, my feelings that people would reject me or not like me. And now I really understand what pride means. Mm. And that's a very, very big thing to me. My house right now is covered in pride flags. Very happy to say. But, you know, I look back on that experience and I think, oh, yeah, well, you know, it was only seven years ago, so world was is a lot kinder place right now so then I feel shame that I didn't come out sooner because I wasn't brave enough so you know this was still a lot of beating up but do you think it was I mean I know you you spent all this time with Sterling and you came to that pivotal moment where you had to decide whether you became CEO or not right was there that intersection is that when you felt that it was time for you to come out no I came out before that so it was before I you came out before that because I had to I had to talk to my partners and tell them that I was coming out. And, you know, they didn't know that, you know, some people are like, what took you so long? They had no idea. So I came out in 2012. So it was seven years ago. And I left Sterling two years ago. So, no, it didn't. And my coming out didn't impact our business at all in what a negative it? way. It was actually fine. It was actually business as usual. What triggered what that triggered moment, what? My the moment the decision to say finally I've got the resolve and the and the and the conviction to say now's the time. To come out or to leave Sterling? To come out. Oh I fell in love with a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and she wasn't gonna live in the closet with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there hadn't no but you so all these years, there, there wasn't a sense of your your identity, sexual identity, and what your preferences were up to that point? Well, I think that I had dabbled, as I used to like to say. Um, I suspected that there might be this part of me back in my 20s. But again, I had I felt so much shame about being who I was and so damaged to begin with that any other sense of being other mm-hmm just was unbearable. So I, I, it didn't even, it wasn't even a consideration set. But I was reading Ann Bannon novels in my 20s under the covers with a flashlight. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear. But then, as I said, I, I fell in love with a woman and, and then it was, you know, all systems ago. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's, I think it's great. Fantastic. So just building on that, we've talked about courage. When you talk about your, your your decade of failure and rejection, what do you think? Which failures do you think have been the most defining in your journey and driving you forward? Hmm. I haven't really ranked the failures. I, I couldn't. I, I really don't know. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't rank them. Yeah. They all are just there. And the thing about them now is that I don't see them as failures anymore. I just see them as stepping stones. But you can only say that in hindsight. I wouldn't say any of those things were failures because I wouldn't be here right now if they hadn't failed. It's a strange, it is a strange thing. I, I remember I, I was working for an agency in, in London called WCRS and I went to that job working on a Land Rover account. This is going to be the best job I've ever had. And I last no more than two years and they let me go with a nice little payoff, as you do. But I felt at that point, well, that's my ad career over. That's just, there's, oh, there's, yeah. there's no going forward now. Of course. And how am I going to deal with telling people? But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Exactly. Because it took, took, took me down the digital direction that then opened up all these other opportunities. Exactly. Now, Dan Gilbert would call that synthesized happiness. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with synthesized happiness and I'm fine with organic happiness, as long as you're happy. Um, I can't say that any of the things that happened 
wouldn't have landed me right now, right here. Same thing even with my childhood. Some of the most important work I'm doing now is working with Mariska Hargitay and the Joyful Heart Foundation to eradicate sexual violence. Who knows if I'd have been doing that if I hadn't experienced it. Do I feel like that is the most important thing I do? Probably. Mm-hmm. So it's all perspective, but it takes it might take 50 years for that to happen. But yeah. And this allowing you to sort of start to challenge and break that cycle. Right. We've gone back to your stepfather and father. Yeah. I mean, I think that, do, do I wish that it were different? Yes. Do I wish that I didn't have to struggle so hard in order to understand love? Absolutely. Would I have liked to have had less violence in my life? Yeah. But at this point, it's made me who I am. I, I do think that had I been better parented, I might have been a happier person, but I'm very happy now, and that's what matters most to me. I read a book last year by Robert Lussig called Hacking the American Mind. Mm. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've heard about it. It's really good because he breaks down the, sort of the neurological um, way that the brain works in relation to dopamine and serotonin. Mm. Um, and oxytocin, and how cr- the importance of obviously connection and creativity plays on the release of, of serotonin and therefore happiness. And it's funny, I, w- I was talking to, a, I was interviewing a guy called Fabrice Grinda, who's number one angel investor in the world. Oh, wow. And he's he's got a technique that he, and he talks about he- hedonic. Um, the hedonic treadmill? Treadmill. And he said, I'm just an inherently happy person, but when I'm creating, I'm even happier. Yeah, I'm happiest when I'm making things. That's how I define my my sense of happiness. Yeah, so I think there's something really interesting in in terms of you've you've had this struggle. You've talked openly about your struggle with de- depression. Has it occurred at times when you've been in a, a less creatively prolific, or is it just been have been other factors that have contributed? Um, the depressions that I felt I had a depression in 2003 and a depression in 2015. The depression in 2015 was sparked by a a confluence of some really difficult situations. My father unexpectedly died. Uh, I was dumped. And I was changing my job situation at Sterling. And I moved for the first time in over two decades. So those those four (laughs) things contributed to my, like, kind of falling apart for Mm -hmm. a couple of months. And then the the, uh, situation in 2003 was also relationship and a lot of external circumstances that beat me down and and gave me a, a sense of despair. But I've recovered mm. from both. So the reason I also bring up Fab- Fabrice, it is a fascinating character. And if you get a chance to go on his site and read some of his essays, he writes letters to himself. So going back to um, your exercise with Milton and then what you do with your students, there's something I find fascinating in that because I used to write down my goals and affirmations mm-hmm. and follow them all. One of them I had when I back in the day and living in, in Scotland was to live in San Francisco and I put a posted picture in my little diary of Union and Hyde and a building and I ended up living there oh, 10 wow. years later. I love which that. Is, which is incredible. It's like Eluna's dream about her white room and then finding it and painting in it. It's incredible. So talk to me more about 
clearly Fabrice is, a, and the way he does it, he writes letters to himself, 20,000, 30,000 words. Wow. He, yeah. I mean, he's off the That's scale. a book. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, and he does this every two, three years. That's incredible. No wonder he's the m- biggest angel investor in the world. And But then he has his mentors and his, and his advisors who he then takes counsel from. And then he almost goes down a, like a test-driven development approach where he throws things on the wall and goes down different routes and then finds and refines. and. Yeah, I, I don't do that. So... <laughs> So, given you did this with with Milton, and I've heard you say that pretty much ninety eight percent of it is yeah, there already. Yeah. I did another one. Well, that's the, what I'm going to say. So what's I, your what's your future focus? Well, I'm on not going. I'm not going to reveal oh, everything. No, no, not a chance. <laughs> um, I'm not going to reveal what I wrote, but I will tell you that it was big and bold, mm-hmm. and a few of them are, are happening. And it's incredible. It's incredible because they're big fat dreams that you don't ever imagine happening, and then all of a sudden, boom. President Millman. <laughs> no, if I was going to no. do anything, I would run for mayor of New York, but yeah. I'm not going to. <laughs> but I fantasized uh, about it. Yeah. It could be, but I fantasized about it, yeah. but I'm not going to do the it. The running could be really good fun. You could sort of imagine all the sort of the comments in the comment section. Right? The branding, yeah. too. I know. Yeah. Oh, we could do with a bit of that. A good good, good logo, good candidate logo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you might need some help with the social media from your students. Yeah, that's true. Okay. What principles do you stand by? Loyalty. Generosity, kindness. Uh, second all of those. What hard choices have you had to make that were tough at the time but did turn out to be the right decision? Leaving Sterling, coming out, leaving a relationship, Okay. starting a new one. <laughs> Where do you go to discover new ideas? The internet. Really? Yeah. Ah. And museums. Ah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. A nice combination. What about when you need space to think? I look out my bedroom windows. I spend a lot of time daydreaming. Any particular time of day? Morning. Always. Every morning. (laughs) Is that your meditation practice? Mm, It's not a meditation practice. It's just a habit. Mm. I'm not meditating. I'm just staring. Mm. And ideas come to you? Yes. And I walk a lot. I walk a lot. And ideas come to me when I'm walking. What are your favorite walking paths? Uh, Just anywhere downtown. I love walking. I walked back and forth to work. I walk back and forth to most meetings. Um, I love walking. What's your perspective on failure? I hate it. I loathe it. I cry. But you've beaten it. For the just just in the past, there's still more to come. Oh, I know, just, but we, that's just the reality of life. It's just one. We, I don't know that I've beaten it. I think I've overcome <clears throat> the okay, feelings. That's a fair, fair point. Yeah. <laughs> um, who have you met that's most surprised you? Roxanne Gay. That was a quick answer. Well, she's my partner now, right. and she surprised me in every way. Well, you, we might have the same answer to the next question. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My therapist. Yeah. How do you keep up with technology? I don't. <laughs> other people help me. Oh, you're me. surrounded by your students. Exactly. Yeah. Other people help me. The impossible question. What would you, your advice be to someone, uh, maybe 20, 30 years your junior, that is being told... Their dream, their grand ambition is not possible. If you want it more than anything, make it your non-negotiable and dedicate everything that you have to making it happen. That's lovely. Your non-negotiable, remember, being New York City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have a non-negotiable now? Is it still New York? No, I wouldn't say it's New York. An open heart. We've never had that answer. Final two questions. Um, we'd like to offer um, listeners a book 
that when they come up with the best comments in the comment section, which book should we recommend other than the many of the books that you've written? Um, Hunger by Roxane Gay. Okay. Who should we interview next? Emily Oberman from Pentagram. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for a really, really good interview. I, would like- I really want to say, well done. You're a very, very good interviewer. Thank you very much. Can I just acknowledge you for your, again, your candor and your openness to vulnerability. Um, it's, I think it's a lesson uh, we can all follow in the footsteps from what you've done by being so open. So many of us are closed and we live in denial of the lives we've led before. And I think you're, the path you've taken and the way that you've told your story with such compelling, in such a compelling and emotive manner is inspiration for people and I hope you continue to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.